0: transforming society podcast is brought to you by bristol university press and policy press in episodes covering a wide range of social issues we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story that their research tells and look at specific ways in which it could transform society for the better i'm jess miles and in this episode my co-presenter rebecca megson smith speaks to stephen mcbride about his book escaping dystopia rebuilding a public domain They talk about radical solutions to global issues such as economic catastrophes, inequality, climate change and political failure. Are there means of escape from the near dystopia we find ourselves in? More information about the book can be found at bristoluniversitypress.co.uk. Stephen McBride, Professor and Canada Research Chair in Public Policy and Globalisation at McMaster University in Canada, is the prolific, prize-winning author of a number of books on public policy, globalisation and political economy. His latest book, Escaping Dystopia, Rebuilding a Public Domain, calls for a radical systems change to avoid the grimly chaotic and unequal future we are currently condemning ourselves to. Escaping Dystopia charts how the rise in dominance of global capitalism and its neoliberal institutions have directly and indirectly led to our current state of near dystopia. McBride documents how our everyday existence has come to be characterized by multiple crises, ranging from economic catastrophes, massive inequalities of poverty and wealth and global health emergencies to climate breakdown, migration wars and political failures. Crises which McBride posits are the inevitable outcomes of neoliberal democracy. Left unchecked, the future looks dark, dystopian even. However, McBride demonstrates that there are means of escape still available to us. By privileging social and collective power over the public sphere and by reinstituting popular sovereignty at the national level, McBride offers a way out towards a future that is radically different to the world we know today. I am delighted, therefore, to be joined by Professor Stephen McBride to discuss these issues in more detail. Stephen, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Rebecca. Really pleased to be here.
0: Great. Um, Well, I think let's just dive straight in. I'd be really grateful if you could help set the scene for us and and talk to me about what is so dystopian about our present situation and the future we're building. Why why would you characterize our world today as near dystopian?
1: Well, uh, when I was finishing the writing of the book, uh, Escaping Dystopia, I wondered if in fact dystopia was going too far it uh, was overly um, pessimistic. Uh, a few months later, now the book's been published, I'm wondering if escaping is maybe too optimistic. So I, I do believe we are in a, um, a-, a fairly dire crisis. Or so to be more specific, we're in a series of crises, multiple crises, which are um, in some cases increasingly frequent or are ongoing, uh, but in any event are interconnected. And just to give a list of them, and I can go into more detail on any of them, if you wish, Uh, there's the economic crisis, there's, of course, the climate and global warming crisis, there's issues of war and security, of uh, migration, um, and uh, probably several others which I've forgotten to mention, but one I won't forget to mention is the kind of political crisis, the failure of our political leadership and institutions really either to prevent these crises from occurring or to um, come up with adequate measures to deal with them now that they have occurred.
0: And uh, you, you, I think you say that these crises are all interconnected. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and I guess in that sense, they have a, a kind of a co- collective route. They're joined at some, at some level. Can you talk to me a bit more about that? How, how is it that we've landed in this place of multiple crises?
1: Sure. Well, in the book, I I put the um, onus really on uh, global capitalism and the neoliberal um, set of ideas and institutions which has been um, governing that or or controlling it. But I think if you look at the um, record, uh, it's, it's clear that we're in a pretty dire situation, like economically, the global financial crisis of 2008 was followed by at least 10 years of austerity which had a a very negative impact on society and therefore a kind of social crisis. Um, That was really not over uh, when the pandemic came along. Uh, That's a healthcare crisis, of course, but health institutions were less able to cope with the situation than they would have been had it not been for a decade of austerity. Um, And of course the healthcare crisis was associated with a very deep economic one. Again, now there's an outbreak of uh, war in Ukraine and Western sanctions in response to that war. This is creating um, uh, an energy uh, shortage of supplies uh, and costs, driving inflation very high. And um, with many people uh, indicating that um, not only will it be inflation that we face as we already do, as anyone who's been to a a shop or a store recently or a petrol station can testify, Um, uh, not only do we have that crisis, but likely there'll be a recession caused by the measures likely to be taken to control it. Uh, So the energy situation too uh, morphs over into the climate issue. Some countries have already said they plan to, because of rising energy costs costs and supply issues, are going to reopen coal-powered stations. This is going to have an effect on emissions and so on and so forth. And of course, war and migration. uh, The war in Eastern Europe isn't the only one, by the way. There's uh, something like 40 armed conflicts going on around the world as we speak. And these have significant effects on the desperate the desperation of people we see on the news who are attempting to migrate to different places. And mm. uh, climate change, too, is producing these kind of migratory pressures. There's going to be a whole new category of refugees, already is really uh, in um, uh, popular terminology climate refugees. Mm. They can continue to live where they are living, they have to move, etc. So these kind of connections, I think, make it for a really um, a really difficult situation for us to be in
0: and are these various crises are they not just inevitable in in terms of human beings living together is there you know the the idea of there being an escape from this form of existence suggests that there are other ways of existing that are possible Um, I, i wondered if you had sort of thoughts on on that
1: Sure. Well, I mean, I think um, these crises are in uh, in part, and maybe largely, um, the product of um, human decisions. For example, the climate crisis is in part the product of the decision to pursue endless growth, mm-hmm. uh, and in a in a capitalist form. Um, so, I, I think really, uh, it's, these things are not inevitable. We could all imagine um, outcomes that would be would have been quite different had decisions been taken at appropriate times. It's not to say they're easy to solve or they could be wished away, uh, that there aren't, in fact, some structural pressures which make life difficult. But I think to say, oh, <laughs> that the world we live in had to be this way is um, simply incorrect.
0: So, what are the changes that we need to make? What are the options that are on the table, and what are the changes that would give us a different future in Europe? Your...
1: <clears throat> well, I, just to um, sidetrack slightly, when I started writing the um, book, it was in the post-pandemic uh, period. Actually, not post-pandemic, but people were in the pandemic and looking forward to the end of it. And so, there were three broad options I think on the table that I could identify. Uh, the first was return to normal, and this is enormously appealing psychologically, because clearly, you know, in in the days of lockdown and uh, all the dislocations that produced the pandemic, produced this is a, a very desirable um, image. Let's just get back to normal. Uh, we we actually see this uh, less attractively in the economic uh, options that are being put forward today. We faced with inflation. What should we do? Well, normal normal neoliberal policy means we write, we raise interest rates. That probably causes a recession. This drives down prices, uh, but at considerable um, human cost, etc. But that's part of the um, part of the rhetoric. the The real problem, though, with returning to normal is um, normal is what got us into these multiple crises to start with. Mm. So this is not an option. We get some uh, more interesting views, I think, from some of the mainstream uh, analysts and um, uh, people who call for a great reset. They call for, if capitalism's the problem, let's have a capital, actually, this option would say capitalism is not the problem, but it may concede that the kind of rampant, greedy, financialized capitalism we've seen of late is a problem. Therefore, we need more responsible capitalism. If um industrial growth is the problem, let's switch to green growth. Mm. If people are alienated because they um, are uh, living in precarious and undesirable situations, let's change to inclusive growth. So these are some of the big slogans which are mm. sort of uh, bandied around. And many of the people who bandy them around may well be perfectly sincere in um, suggesting these are pathways mm. out of the current situation. But the problem with these um, proposals, I guess, are that they're very vague, typically. They depend a great deal on um, technologies, some of which have not yet been invented, but to transition to a green economy. Um, Digitalization is put forward as a major um, contributor to, uh, in the long run, employment security or better jobs and things of that kind. Um, So so they're very vague, but they're also hugely expensive. And it's not clear who exactly is gonna pay in these formulations for this. My suspicion on reading the the texts is the public is gonna be expected to pay to induce the private sector to do things which arguably it should be doing already. And the other thing about these proposals is it leaves in place the players who produced the multiple crises we're in. So there is a sort of lack of confidence, um, I think, uh, among many people. Actually, um, <clears throat> I know figures can be uh, confounding and uh, are always useful, but uh, in the book, I quote an opinion poll from 2019 by um, Ipsos. It was a survey of 27 different countries. <clears throat> and Seventy percent of the respondents across those twenty-seven countries said the economy is rigged in favor of the rich and powerful, mm. um, etc. I mean, there are other polls that show the same kind of thing—a lack yeah. of trust in um, <clears throat> in institutions and so forth. So that's a problem with the uh, uh, the second of those options. The um, third one um, that I Talk about in the book really says you have to get to grips with root causes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and if the root cause is the combination of um, endless growth, global capitalism supported by neoliberalism and neo-institutions, those are the things that have to change. Mm-hmm. So uh, the radical transformation means um, restoring, well, restoring or at least imposing the power of people organized democratically over capital. Uh, a power which, if it ever existed, has been lost for sure, and um, imposing controls on capital Um, in order to change the goals of economic and other kinds of policies to produce a more sustainable and equitable um, future. There is a problem. uh, There are two problems with this approach, of course, is <clears throat> people can understandably wonder if it's possible at all to do this yeah. and it's certainly the case that there's no organized political entity at present that looks capable of achieving this on the other hand um, as I think in the book I make a number of disclaimers this is not a manifesto for political yeah. action etc etc <clears throat> all I'm trying to do in the book is to say what's necessary to solve these crises uh, and I think, the gist of the argument is the first two won't get there. <clears throat> uh, therefore, the third is the one that should be attempted. <clears throat> Excuse me. The third is the one that should be attempted, even if its prospects don't look great at the moment. There are some grounds for optimism that that could change in the future.
0: And. I think you also say that actually the, the, the sort of the second option, which in some senses is quite binary, isn't it? It's looking at the problem as is and then just sort of almost flipping it. Um, but it's still it's still working within the same structure and the same system of rules. Um, but I think one of the things you say is that that's whilst that's not a solution in itself, that might be a, a road that we have to go through on the way to um, to, to more radical change um is that is that correct
1: uh, yes I, I, I mean i i think so because when you look at the system we currently live under it wasn't created overnight rome wasn't built in a day neither was this system right it's been incremental and underway for a number of decades and one could imagine the solutions uh being attempted in, in pretty much the same way a trial and error basis mm-hmm. pushing along making some gains here that doesn't work well um there'd be a debate about that, just whether to back off or to double down and make it take it further and so forth. This is the way politics works. So I think some of the um, the kind of things which are in option number two, um, which I call liberal reform in the book, but in um, you know political uh, statements, it's often referred to as building back better or some variant of that. Building back the appeal to normal, better mm-hmm. not quite normal, something a little different i i think some of those um initiatives could play a, a role as a starting point in a more radical mm-hmm. transformative process so yeah it's not these are not really either or positions except possibly the back to normal one which has very few uh <laughs> has very few pluses if any but the other one could be something that because i also i think there's a need to create political alliances around the need for change. And some people will be quite committed to that option two and not so much to option three, but mm-hmm. for a certain point in time, at any rate, advocates of these two options can perhaps uh, match together.
0: Together, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, one, one of the things that I think you, you explain really well in the book is this, um, the sort of contradiction almost inherent uh, in liberal democracy and then and and then you you, you, you know you, you talk about um, liberalism being about free market values and uh, quite kind of pro-capitalism quite hands off and democracy obviously being about equality um, of, of of rights and equality of people and that those two things have never necessarily been easy bedfellows and then you also go on to explain neoliberalism Um, as being something that um, is almost uh, suspicious of democracy and and, and has worked quite extensively to undermine democracy. And and as you were just saying, in order to move into that more radical uh, option three, we need sort of people power again. I, I wonder if you could talk to me a bit more about how we get from this uh, depoliticized place that many you know many people find themselves in to a position where we're able to um to make those sorts of changes
1: um sure uh, uh, and thanks for the really tough question that's the difficult one sorry <laughs> <laughs> um uh, but just to backtrack a little um this kind of depoliticization i think people are kind of conscious of it. it it's been analyzed by academics right it probably needs to be um um expanded upon more it's the re- removal of whole areas of decision making from democratic life to international agreements international rules meaning debate is over once those agreements are signed and um uh, internally um central bank independence there's a slogan uh, for you but what it means is monetary policy is really hived off from the democratic uh, part of uh, um, the system Uh, privatization and uh, what in canada we call p3s public private partnerships Mm. uh, etc all of this is kind of removing areas from the sphere of democracy so what would um uh what would, uh, what signs are there that this could be um, sort of uh, brought back and changed uh, it would be one way of looking at this. I think the way I would um, approach it is through looking at um, the crises themselves, um, which create, I think, a, a um, an appreciation that change is going to be needed, mm. that something has to be done. I mean, these crises are deep. They are, as I argue, multiple and interlocking. Uh, th- the future is not going to, the future, <laughs> the is already here. It's not particularly good, and it's not going to be any better if things mm-hmm. um, continue um, uh, the way they are. And I think the notion of crisis is an interesting one, too. And it's an, it's an overused word in many ways, and I've probably overused it, overused it myself in this interview already. But um, the, um, it means a bad situation obviously that carries on in a medical analogy it sometimes means a turning point the patient is ill a crisis the crisis comes either the the patient gets better or the patient doesn't get better in in this analogy but the third thing about a third definition of a crisis that i kind of like is a crisis is a revealing moment in which things which have previously been obscure become clearer and as they become clearer uh a way out or ways out of the situation suggest themselves Mm. um, that were um, previously not there because the assumption is things are gonna be immutable and stay the same and there's nothing uh, that can be done, but revealing moments reveal, A, perhaps that something has to be done and B, um, what uh, might be done. Uh, And on this business of change, because I think this is a perception that things are too difficult to change, that the system is too strong. But it, you know, if you look back historically over the 20th century and the first part of the 21st century, change has been constant, sometimes been gradual, sometimes radical and so forth. Not always for the good, by the way. I mean, you know, whether, whether change takes a positive or a negative form um, is up, up for grabs, up for politics ultimately, but change has been um, normal. So do the conditions exist, which we could see um, uh, leading to change of the of the kind I'm sort of talking about in the book? Well, I think there is this awareness of the downsides of the various crises for a start, uh, a recognition that things really um, can't uh, continue as they are uh, for very long. Um, secondly, I think the, the ideological or ideational basis of the system we've been operating under is increasingly discredited. Mm-hmm. Um, this, uh, if, you, if you think back far enough, in the early period of neoliberalism, there was a real triumphalism about the superiority of markets, a real um, zealotry uh, missionary spirit that if only we could get the markets working, everything would get better. Mm-hmm. Well, 40 years on, we've got the results of that, and it's not so great. And I, even if there are still neoliberals, I don't think they're uh, quite as zealous or, or quite as um, uh, passionate as they were about the, 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 uh, about that um, aspect of, uh, they, don't have a, they themselves don't have as much confidence, I guess, in the outcomes of neoliberalism. And why would they? Because the outcomes have not been great. So I think this creates um, uh, opportunities. Similarly, the, um, <clears throat> the distrust of political institutions and even the rise of things like anti-system parties, including right-wing populist parties, which are um, uh, not part of the solution, except in one respect, perhaps. Um, all of this creates a... A situation where the old certainties are increasingly up for grabs the, the one exception about the right-wing populists i <clears throat> would make is they're wrong about <laughs> they're wrong about many things but they're not wrong that there's a huge disconnect between the elite and the people of the elites and the people they're not wrong about that mm. uh, and i think um, that's a that insight, which is not confined to them, but it can be built upon in promoting change. Mm. So is there any evidence that um, change of this type uh, is possible? Well, I think you can find it it, um, incompletely in in some um, cases where challenges have been thrown down to the political system, sometimes on very specific issues. I think of the austerity uh, examples, for example. <clears throat> um, lots of people didn't like austerity. Lots of people protested about it, this or this aspect of it, uh, usually um, and understandably from the way it impacted them most, um, themselves. But sometimes, and it varied from country to country and it was unpredictable, sometimes a specific protests would escalate into a generalized opposition to austerity. Uh, not that that was necessarily successful, but it it magnified from a specific issue to a big issue. The, the cases I'm thinking of are in Spain, uh, housing and evictions was the trigger which generalized the opposition to austerity. Mm. In Ireland, uh, imposition of water meters and water charges was the one that did it. In Quebec, it was tuition fees. So uh, these um, specific uh, issues and the opposition to it generalized and became a broader based one. The most dramatic example, actually, uh, I think, um, is what happened in Chile with um, a protest against a fare increase on subways which uh, generalized into a whole condemnation of 30 or 40 years of neoliberalism, leading to the demand successful that a constitutional convention be convened outside of the control of the political establishment to construct a new uh, constitution. Now, I'm not sure whether this story um, has a happy ending or not because the document which I haven't seen has just been published, the new constitution. It's gonna be voted on in two months. So I don't know what's in it or whether it will be approved, but what I do know is the example of what happened over something quite minute in in the global scheme of things, an increase on subway fares, uh, mushroomed into a much broader based political movement, did politics differently, and has produced a challenge to the system. So I think um, what that indicates is that people have the capacity to begin to exercise popular sovereignty Sometimes. Um, and it's not, uh, I mean, I, I wish I could predict when all this was going to happen and then I would be rich and I'd make my fortune of doing course, it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, but it does seem to be somewhat unpredictable, but it also does seem to happen. Mm. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I, I, think, I think that's a, a cause of optimism that something. It's uh, interesting well, that it's on
0: oh, the small things, isn't it? It's interesting that it can be a quite uh, a small, but it's the unifying trigger almost. It's <laughs> the thing that um, is able to mass um, a, a great number of people behind it. It's it, That's really fascinating. Just You mentioned just then this notion of uh, popular sovereignty, and I wondered if you could talk to that term a little bit more for us.
1: Sure. Well, it's... Um... I mean, the, the term has a long history, but, and it, I guess, translates into something, um, you know, commonsensical, like the power of the people, meaning um, it's uh, akin to the original meaning of democracy, right? That the people should decide ultimately
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, what happens to them. Um, it, it's, it's, probably, it's problematic in certain respects because the people is not a unified Entity, it's (laughs) the people are very diverse and need to um, organize themselves and come together to achieve their aims. Mm. But I think what the principle uh, does express is the idea that we we ought not to be living in a world of predetermined rules, predetermined by somebody else. That we should have the capacity to be able to change the um, the policies and systems under which we live, and that that's got to be accomplished um democratically as opposed to by the um well the, essentially the collusion of a political elite and an economic elite you know mm. determining policy and i, I use the word um collusion um, in a way uh, deliberately i know it's you know it can sound conspiratorial wouldn't want to go there no 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 um but um there is, I think, this sense, and it's accurate that the active uh, political class, if you want to call it that, have become divorced from the public. There is a crisis, in other words, to put it more technically, of representation
0: mm-hmm. and of
1: accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, and the old forms of representation don't seem to work very well. You know, the geographic, you, we each, you and I, we each live in some constituency somewhere lines on a map if it's an urban center not no great commonality necessarily of interest within it the the people who we elect um are more beholden to their political party than they are to the citizenry which elects them and therefore um you know the notion that they're accountable really except you know occasionally well they're collectively accountable once in a while through an election i suppose um, but it's not a very powerful concept especially in conditions like the present for example in my uh, as you may or may not know canada's divided into provinces and we in the one i live in we just had an election the government got re-elected with um because it's a first past the post electoral system with 40 uh, percent of the vote which got them two-thirds of the seats but that 40 percent of the vote was on the basis of a 43 percent turnout which means that this government now has absolute power within the confines of a province, uh, provincial jurisdiction, on the basis of 17.5% of the eligible electorate. So this is not representation in any Mm -hmm. meaningful sense, and it's certainly not accountability either. So I think that the idea behind popular sovereignty, not that it's fully fleshed out in the book, is there has to be some other way, there have to be other ways to implement representation and accountability other than the ones we're presently using. Mm -hmm. And as a side issue, I I make the argument in the book, which will probably be controversial in some quarters, that the highest level at which I can imagine this happening at the present time is the nation-state level. Um, uh,
0: the reason for that is?
1: Well, it's partly that I I can't see the, the... Within nation states, you can see there is a population uh, that they, that lives there, right? Um, obviously, there is within the world internationally a population too, but it doesn't seem to cohere. Uh, I can't imagine it cohering as easily as it could do within a, within a, at a nation state level. The institutions are not there. To the extent that they are, they're not democratic institutions. The international ones, by and large. Um, There is this um, concept at the nation state level that uh, the institutions should be, uh, not every nation state, but in many nation states, that the uh, institutions should be democratic, which is something to build on. Yes. Um, So that's why really it's might not be my ideal option personally, but it's the de facto possibility option. Mm, 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 mm. And that's why.
0: And... uh... Yes, with and I suppose it's the highest level at which we can see some kind of unity most easily. I suppose.
1: Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people, unjustifiably, are, <clears throat> and justifiably are um, su- uh, suspicious or uh, are not too keen on nation states, largely because they associate them with nationalism.
0: Yes. And
1: that, yes. You know, and that's <laughs> an, uh, um, you know, has negative, uh, a negative, I wouldn't say connotations, a negative reality in many cases, mm-hmm. especially when it gets defined in terms of only some of the people are yes. uh, truly the people, right? And then there's, so it's us and then the others who are um, not part of the nation. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think it has to be that way. I mean, uh, I think a nation state can just be defined as a legal entity within which everyone who resides in it, as, well, are members of the nation state. Um, So I think we need to detach nationalism in that sort of um, perjurative sense of ethnic purity and all these other kinds of Mm -hmm. concepts to to detach it from uh, a vehicle, which seems to be available possibly uh, to engineer political choices Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: political changes.
0: It's, i suppose sort of going on from that what would a more utopian future comparatively speaking look like um,
1: <coughs> yes um well escaping from dystopia doesn't necessarily mean arriving at utopia
0: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: means uh just uh significantly improving yes uh, things uh in the book i i tried to sketch out at some point a um uh, well, an answer to your question, what would things look like? So I came up with a list of things like a relatively prosperous, egalitarian economy um, with um, adequate uh, publicly provided social supports for things like education, health, long term care, etc. An economy uh, that was um, focused on managed growth, not endless growth in order to achieve sustainability. And, but summary distribution, because there are huge problems, as we know, like poverty, nationally and internationally. So you do need some growth to uh, address those things. Um, uh, uh, these, these economies would be governed by states, which would, um, or public authorities, which would be more autonomous and freed from the rules of the international, uh, relatively freed. Capital, on the other hand, would be more controlled than it already is. And in this um, happy scenario, these nation-states would cooperate internationally rather than be bound into hierarchical systems. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, actually,
1: this does sound rather utopian. It in sounds the pretty <laughs>
0: utopian, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> However, I mean, it, it's, perhaps it is idealistic, but when you look through the ingredients, a relatively prosperous egalitarian economy and society uh, respectful of the environment and seeking to operate in a sustainable fashion etc etc i mean these are not unreasonable objectives they seem unreasonable perhaps in the present context but that simply demonstrates how uh, close to a dystopian situation we are
0: yeah 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 yes as you say they ought that ought to be a perfectly reasonable shopping list it, it shouldn't shouldn't be uh it shouldn't have a dream capacity so it should it no that's really interesting I, I had one last question I wanted to ask you which is obviously you have been working and studying in this area for quite a few years and I'm really interested to um just find out your view on how how the landscapes changed over that period of time is the 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 the, the development, I suppose, um, deeper into a more neoliberal um, ideology being the prevailing one that is uh, that that's dominant. Um, is that something that you think you know, perhaps earlier on in your career, you you foresaw coming, or 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 not so much?
1: The um, the transition to neoliberalism. Yes. Well, because uh, it, it wasn't um, a sudden overnight thing either, right? It, it developed in the 70s, um, late 70s uh, uh, election of Margaret Thatcher in the UK, of course, would be one of the... Mm,
0: the, markers. the, yes, yes, yeah. the key
1: markers yes, absolutely. and uh, it developed gradually over the 80s with, internationally through trade agreements culminating in the WTO, which these days looks like a pretty mild trade agreement, but um, because some of the ones negotiated since have gone way beyond WTO provisions, so it's a gradual process. As to whether anyone sits down and foresees these things, I think at some point you become aware that things are changing
0: and mm. changing
1: quite uh, radically. Uh, in that case, in the neoliberal um, direction, uh, and I suppose. Um, my motivation in the, the various kinds of research I've done since then, whether it be on um, trade agreements or austerity or on labor markets, which are the big areas um, I've actually done work on, my motivation has actually been to understand the kind of contradictions within the neoliberal package and how change could occur uh, in the future. And a lot of that is, of course, is critique of what neoliberalism has produced. Um, so the, um, I guess the current situation, which I I either call dystopia or impending dystopia, depending on <laughs> depending on what day it is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: it provides one of these potential turning points
0: mm-hmm. uh, with
1: the, with the change on the table. Although, again, um, the nature of that change is. Really uh, will be fought over for sure, mm.
0: um,
1: but at least there is the potential of creating something not reverting to the past to the pre pre um, uh, neoliberal days because a specific set of circumstances uh, brought around that period called the Keynesian era full employment Keynesian welfare state etc. Those circumstances are not. Um, uh, aren't replicated today. So it's clearly what has to occur is something uh, new. But one thing is clear, I think, is that whether it survives or not, the neoliberal framework and approach is in deep crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's expressed uh, in these uh, multiple uh, crises, none of which, uh, to get back to an earlier question you raised, none of which seems to be inevitable. So
0: uh, uh, my very, very final thing is: Would you are you optimistic about the future? Should we be optimistic about the future? Well,
1: uh, I've always claimed um, to have a realistic approach to um, things, <coughs> and um, <coughs> realism tells me that we're in a very difficult situation, with uh, still um, powerful forces uh, committed to the the. Um, maintenance of the existing arrangements. However, that list of uh, events which I went through earlier, the the anti-austerity and the Chilean constitution, Mm -hmm. just as examples, uh, tells me there is the possibility for change to be a positive change to occur. So in that respect, yes, I'm an optimist.
0: Great. (laughs) That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today, Stephen, and for sharing with us so many of the insights captured within your brilliant book, Escaping Dystopia, Rebuilding a Public Domain. This powerful account of the dystopian future we are already partially living is passionately argued um, against by Stephen. This book encourages us to look at the system with clearer eyes and challenges us to imagine a more vividly egalitarian and enabling future, something we can only do with a detailed and rigorous understanding of how we got here and where, unchecked, it will lead us next. Whilst uh, it's not an activist manifesto or a handbook on how to bring about radical transformation Escaping Dystopia gives us a fresh framing for recognizing the preconditions required for fundamental change to occur, and moreover gives us reasons to be hopeful that the future does not have to be more of the same with worse to come. Escaping Dystopia, Rebuilding a Public Domain is published by Bristol University Press and is available via all good book retailers. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much.